They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron of pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she ran up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you, give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now, Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with men. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling? And honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves in the choicest parts of every offering of my people of Israel. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your house and the house of your fathers should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then, in distress, you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of Naaman. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, Please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. Thank you, Kyle. You can tell we're in Old Testament narrative because it's such a long reading now. Want to invite our children to uh, children's church up through third grade. Teacher will meet you back there. 
while they're going, I wanted to make a couple of quick announcements before we pray, so I'm not making prayers and announcements. Um, so first of all, I ask you to pray for me. My back is just, it's not like one place, it's just a general ache, and so I'm a little fuzzy headed. So if I don't make sense tonight, I'm blaming, or today, I'm blaming my back, so I've already messed up. Um, so pray for that. The second thing is I'm going to pray for a man named Ken Morang, who's a friend of Lisa's, a person that Lisa worked with back in the Air Force back in the 80s. And he, uh, after he got out of the Air Force, he was a, a guard at a prison. And they were working them really hard, like 16, 18 hours a day. He fell asleep at the wheel on the way home and accidentally killed a nine-year-old girl. He was found guilty recently of manslaughter, vehicular manslaughter or something like that. He hasn't been sentenced yet, but this was not like a man who was out partying or anything. He was trying to serve. And uh, so we, I want to pray for him and for the hearing that will come up on his sentencing, um, that maybe the judge would give him some mercy on this because it was, you know, work-related kind of thing. And then um, um, Melissa Bohannon's mom, Charlotte, um, her sewer backed up in her bathroom, and so she's out of her house right now. Um, they're coming in to clean it up and remove, remove asbestos and everything. So she's in a hotel while she's waiting for her house to be finished. She fell and she hit her head and possibly cracked a rib. And so she's in the hospital with, uh, with that. So I wanted to pray for her too. And I just wanted to mention those before we pray because I don't want to spring them on you and you know, have you distracted. So let's, let's join together now and pray. Lord, it's great right and good that we come together and worship you. Thank you for calling us to this and giving us the chance in, in uh, this place to gather in the name of Jesus. And Lord, I want to offer up prayers first for myself. Um, Lord, I just ask that your strength would be perfected, would be shown to be full and complete in my weakness. Um, and I, I, I would, of course, Lord, prefer that the pain wasn't there, the ache wasn't there. But Lord, you know what's best and right. And so I'm putting myself into your hands and trusting you. And uh, Lord, would you show yourself to be sufficient in all these things? Father, we want to lift up um, our sister Charlotte. And we pray for her health and her recovery. She's in the hospital, Lord. I pray that they would uh, have a clear vision of what to do. Um, Lord, that the doctors would understand the injuries that she sustained. And Lord, that you would uh, restore her soon that uh, she would be uh, strengthened again and uh, be able to return home. Um, and uh, Lord, we just ask your mercy on her. Pray for um, for Dave and Melissa Bohannon as they tend to their um, mom and uh, have mercy. Father, we pray for our brother, Bob Temple. Uh, Lord, we pray for his continued um, growth and strength, that you would restore his health to him soon. Uh, thank you that uh, he's up and walking and uh, getting the exercise that he needs. Lord, would you just work in him in a wonderful way? And uh, I know Bob is talking to everybody that he sees about who Jesus is. And so, Lord, would you give him uh, a miracle that uh, he could share with those around him and, and say, it's not me, Lord, it's the Lord. It's just Jesus cares. So have mercy on him. We pray for Judy, too, that you would meet her and her need as her husband's in the hospital, that you would um, supply for her what she needs to uh, to do as far as making decisions and and all the little household details. And Lord, as a body of believers, I pray that we would surround the temples and support them more. And Father, I want to pray for Ken Morang. Um, and I just ask, Lord, that you would extend mercy to him through the judge, that um, his sentence would not be um, life in prison for working too hard, for serving the community in a, in a prison setting, 
Um, but Lord, that you would have mercy on them. And uh, Lord, would you accomplish in them what you are intending to accomplish. And Father, I want to quickly pray for the Farrells before we call them up at the end of the service. And thank you for their safe arrival here in the States, their uh, chance to share with us. And um, we pray for their continued effective ministry. And so, uh, Lord, would you be with them um, as they prepare to return? And Lord, now as we turn to your word, we we long for you to be with us. And we long, Lord, to hear your voice, to hear you speak this morning. So come, Holy Spirit, and speak to us through your word, we pray. Amen. So the early church suffered persecution at, at numerous times. It, it kind of came and went. The, the persecution of the early church kind of reached a crescendo around uh, 303 to 305 um, under the emperor Domitian. It was particularly bad. Domitian was trying to keep his, his control of, of the Roman Empire together. And so his advisors told him, well, what you should do is reinstitute emperor worship. And so across the empire, they made an edict that said, you had to approach an altar, offer a pinch of, of um, incense, and announce Caesar is Lord. And this would be the form of worship. And when you did, they gave you a certificate that said you, you were okay, and you could go and shop and, and trade and that kind of thing. If you didn't, there was persecution waiting. There was arrest. There was torture if it was deemed appropriate. And under Roman rule, deemed appropriate was just how they felt that day. There was no real clear lines on that. That was just kind of in general. For the Christians, it was that. And Christians couldn't say Caesar is Lord. All we can say is Jesus is Lord. So for the Christians, it was that Plus, Domitian said, any Christian leader who is found has to burn the scriptures that they have and any Christian writings that they hold on to. And so that was where that persecution got to. Now, what happened in the church, especially in the area of Carthage, Carthage is the very northernmost tip of Africa, just south of Italy. Um, in Carthage, there kind of came two groups there were those who were called the confessors. And the confessors were those who had confessed Christ before the, uh, the uh, government and resisted that and suffered martyrdom. That group kind of got a little bit more radical and some of them actually sought out martyrdom. They thought that was a, a, a good and a wonderful thing to be persecuted like that. And so they were pretty hardcore. There was another group that had capitulated. They, they couldn't face the persecution and the torture. And so they offered the sacrifice. Some of them burned scriptures. And they earned the name Trattori, which is Latin for hand over, because they handed over the scriptures. It's where we get our English word traitor, Trattori. When the persecution was over, the church had to face this big question of how do we handle this issue? Who was right? What do we do with the Trattori? Should they be restored to fellowship? What about a bishop who had, who had offered sacrifice or burnt scriptures? Could they be called back into office? And so this was a huge issue for the church. Now, shortly after that, Constantine became the emperor and authorized Christianity throughout the empire, which you figure would resolve it, but it still left that lingering issue. What about the Trattori? What do we do with them? And so the, the answers came kind of in two different categories. There was a, um, an archde archdeacon who was eventually promoted to bishop named Cecilium. And Cecilium said, we can't tolerate these confessors who are so hardcore that they would go and, and um, throw themselves into martyrdom. He, he tried to convince Christians, don't take them food in prison. 
They, they made that bed, they can lay in it. And he was very tolerant to the Trattori. He would easily welcome them back in. Well, there were other bishops. Eventually, the one that kind of came to the head was Donatus. And Donatus said, no, Trattori are cut off. Can't have anything to do with them. They cannot function in the church anymore. And as usually happens when you get into sharp arguments like this, the two parties were driven to extremes. And the folks who followed Donatus eventually said, if you were baptized by a bishop who was a Trattori, you were not baptized. It didn't count. You have to be baptized again by somebody who's faithful. It, the, the Trattori, if they administer any of the sacraments, they don't count. And eventually got to the point where they said, the effectiveness of the sacraments is resting on the, the purity, the moral purity of the person who administers them. Now, the church got together after this and had a council and figured out that's heresy. It, the, the effectiveness of the sacraments is not resting on the moral purity of the person. But the issue lingered for a while. It was, it was a big struggle on what do you do with this? Now, I bring this up, and I'm going to resolve that kind of talk a little bit at the end of the sermon, kind of bring it together for us. But what we're going to see this morning is we're going to see two families at the tabernacle. There, there's Eli's family and Elkanah's family. And what we're going to do is we're going to see this play out exactly what Hannah had prayed for last week. Remember her prayer last week? She said a number of things in there, and I said that what that prayer was, the reason the author put that right at the beginning there was because it was like an overture for the drama, for the opera of the coming of the kingdom of God. And immediately the author throws this story in, drops this right on us immediately, and we get to hear of this, this contrast between Eli's sons and really Samuel. That, that's kind of the two stars. So it's going to go through four acts. There's, there's kind of a back and forth. There's worthless priests, and then there's a humble minister. And then there's a good, bad report and a good report. And then finally, God speaks. And what's the most important part of this passage? When God speaks, that's it. That's what it's about. So that's where it's going to resolve is, is the author is setting this up for us, contrasting these two back and forth. And then God comes and makes the announcement and explains the whole thing to us. So that's where we're going to go. And when we get to that end, once we go through that, that judgment, then I'll, I'll go back to the Donatus controversy and, and show how that plays in for us. Where do we fit into this? So the first part is these worthless priests, verses 12 through 17. The sons of Eli were worthless men. Actually, in, in Hebrew, it's the sons of Bilal, the, the worthless. They're, they're not doing anything right. What they're doing is they're ministering at the tabernacle, which is in the, the place called Shiloh. And they're there and they're working. But when people would come to offer sacrifices, they would take whatever they wanted. So it says that, that their servants would come and thrust a three-pronged fork into the pot and pull out whatever they wanted and they'd take it. It also says that they eventually said, well, we don't want boiled meat anymore. You've got to give us raw meat. And if you don't, we'll beat you up. So this is, this is the kind of abuse that's going on. What's happening here is in Leviticus 7, these are probably fellowship offerings, not sin offerings. Not that they didn't abuse those. I'm sure they did. I mean, if they were that bad with this, they couldn't have been any better with other ones. But these were probably fellowship offerings. And so what the, the, the custom or the, the command in Leviticus 7 and 8 was, is you would bring this sacrifice and the first thing that you would do is you would give to the priest the fat from your sacrifice, and then the priest got the breast and the right thigh. 
they would burn the fat and then they would take that food. What would happen with the rest of the sacrifice is the family would take it and they would cook it and they would eat it there before the Lord. This fellowship offering was a party. Every time I picture the tabernacle at Shiloh, I picture it in this nice, beautiful wooded place with a bunch of picnic tables out front. Because that's what you would do is you'd bring your sacrifice, you'd meet the priest at the door, you'd slaughter the animal, they'd sprinkle the blood, they'd burn it. Then you would take the meat and you would sit down with your family and you would have a feast. You would just enjoy it before the Lord. This is my fellowship. I am so glad to be here. It's kind of like when we have um, uh, meals here together. It's just a joy-filled time. And to know you're doing it right in front of the Lord, right before the Lord, it's just such a great thing. What the priests were doing is they said, well, we're sick of uh, breast and thigh. We want whatever we want. And so they would stick a, a three-pronged fork. Don't think a little salad fork. This was probably a big like shovel. They jam it in and they would probably aim for the best cuts of meat and pull the whole thing out. They said, that's what we're taking. And then when it came to this other part, they said, we don't want boiled meat anymore. Now there was nothing in the, the, um, the only boiled meat that was mentioned was the oath of, or the uh, uh, sacrifice for consecration. So this wasn't something they would do all the time necessarily, but this may just be the way the families ate the meat. It was the easiest way to cook it for them. They didn't have, they had the picnic tables, but they didn't necessarily have the barbecues out there. Maybe, you know, the, the 10 gallon drums they cut in half weren't invented yet. Let's say that. So they, they would boil this meat and that was supposed to be for them to eat. And then the priests go, well, we don't want that. We, we're, we want it raw. We don't want what you're going to cook. We want the good and we're going to pick the good stuff. And so the people tried to compromise. Did you hear what they said? Look, you guys burn the fat first and then take whatever you want. Now, they weren't supposed to take whatever they wanted, but it was a compromise. And they were like, nope, we're taking the meat first. So the way that the, the author sums it up is he says that the sin of the young man was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. It also says that this is what they used to do to Israel. So here's what they're doing. A family shows up, and they're about to offer a sacrifice, and the priests, instead of ministering the way they were supposed to, take the best for themselves. You guys go whatever's left you can have it and then we just want to offer this sacrifice could you just burn this this fat first no we're taking the meat first so they were stealing from the people of israel they were taking food literally taking food out of their mouths but also they were treating the offering of the lord with contempt they were stealing from god god had established this he doesn't need does god need you to burn the, the fat does he need the food he doesn't eat he's not hungry he wants that offering because of the fellowship, the relationship. And so they're stealing from the people because they're taking food out of their mouth. They're stealing from the Lord because the Lord says, come and celebrate with me. Come and feast with me. Be with me. Enjoy this. And he's taking, they're taking that away from them for their own pleasure, for their own purpose. They treated the offering of the Lord like it was their own private butcher shop. We'll take this cut, but not that cut. So they were abusing these kinds of things. They were worthless fellows. That's that one. Now we get the contrast. A humble minister, verses 18 through 21. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed in a linen ephod. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy. One single little boy is ministering. Two grown adult men are abusing. So it says that he was ministering before the Lord, clothed in a linen ephod. Uh, the, the ephod, I'm glad this came up because it's always confused me. What is an ephod? When you go through the law, it was an apron that they put on the front of the priest and went over the shoulders. But there's other places where it's a, a skirt. 
around the waist. Probably could be both. Whatever it was, what a linen ephod did, it was like priestly garb. So think of the Roman collar that, that uh, priests wear, the black shirt with a little white tab. It you see somebody wearing that, you know what that means, right? They're in, supposed to be in ministry of some sort. So that's what the linen ephod was, is it demonstrated, it showed forth, this is somebody who's in ministry to the Lord. And the ephod will come up again under the curse. But that's what he did is he wore this linen ephod. And his mother used to make him a little robe. So we don't get a whole bunch of Hannah's feelings about this, do we? But every year she's thinking of her son. She took her boy after she weaned him, dropped him off at the temple, at the tabernacle. And then she didn't like forget about him. Every year she's going, oh, you know, I wonder how, Sam, how big Samuel is. I'll make this robe. And, and she's spending time throughout the year making this. And then when they go up for the yearly sacrifice, she gives it and brings it to him. And so she, he would wear this robe, and then the linen ephod would go over top of that. And so this is, this is the, the compassion and the care that she has for him. And so Eli blesses her. He blesses Elkina. He says, may the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. And so he, he blesses her. He's just so happy to have them come to the tabernacle. Even though the sons are abusing them, they come back every year. And Eli blesses. And, it's, and the way the author sums it up is in verse 21. He says, indeed, the Lord visited Hannah. Not only did he give her um, Samuel, but he, she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. So she, she had more children. Now, last week, I made the mistake, and I said that she had seven kids. She had six. She had Samuel and these five. But I hope you can forgive me for that. So just little tiny thing. So the Lord visited her. Why did she not have children before? Because the Lord had closed her womb. Then, she op then he opened the, her womb when she got Samuel. And now she has dedicated Samuel to the Lord. And the Lord continues to bless her and continues to pour out on her. And she has more children. And this is just such great news. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. He grew in the presence of the Lord because he ministered at the tabernacle. And so as he's growing up, he's growing up in the presence of God before the Lord, working in that tabernacle. So that's the contrast is these, these two rotten sons and this one blessed son. Oh, and by the way, there's a whole bunch of other children too. This is good news. Now there's a bad report. Verses 22 through 25, Eli was very old. Um, the estimate is he's probably about 90 years old here because later on when he dies, he's 98. So this is kind of the estimate. He's probably in the, in the 90s. In those days with the healthcare system they had and the diet they had, 90 was incredible. So he's a very old man. He was very old and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to Israel. He, he, he is apparently kind of a high priest. He's kind of in charge of this stuff. And he has to hear it from somebody else what they're doing. So it's probably either because of age or disposition or, or who knows, but he's not actively engaged in what's going on at the temple. He hears about it from other people. Or perhaps what the author is intimidating or is intimating here is he knew and he didn't do anything until people came and complained. So whatever it is, he, he starts hearing about what these sons of his or these, uh, these sons of his were doing and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. They weren't cult prostitutes. That was something that the pagans did. As a matter of fact, in Exodus 38, it mentions the women who ministered at the tent of meeting. 
So these were not like prostitutes or something. These were women who were at the tent of meeting. Nowhere does it tell us what they did. They just ministered. So maybe they were singers. Maybe they were helping families. Who knows? I don't know what they would be doing, but they were at the, t- at the door of the meeting or the door of the tent of meeting. And these rotten sons of Eli would go hook up with them. So I just picture a family coming up with their, their sacrifice and everything. And, hey, we're ready to offer it. Well, the priest's not here. You're going to have to wait. Where is he? He's busy. He'll be back in a bit. And then you see the priest and the woman ministering at the gate coming back, joking and tittering as they walk back over. Yeah, what do you want? Okay. And then go through that whole routine. Well, I get this. You can have the rest. That, that's the kind of picture that's going on. So they're, they're indulgent. The picture we get here is they are self-indulgent. They're going to take whatever food they want, not what the Lord has allocated them. They're going to sleep with whoever they want and just, just horrible people, horrible, horrible people. And so you leave, uh, Eli says, why do you do such things? Why would you do this? The Lord has provided for you so many great things. Why would you indulge yourself like this? It's not a good report, I hear. This is bad news. And then he asked this really good theological question. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. That was what the whole temple system was about. If you sinned against somebody, you brought your offering and you said, I've sinned and here's how I'm forgiven. And the priest could mediate between you and somebody who had sinned against you and that kind of thing. What happens when the priest is compromised? Who's going to intermediate for you? This was before Jesus came. So he couldn't just say, well, God will do it. He's saying, you have sinned not against man, but you're sinning actively against God in the only capacity that there is for you to be forgiven. You're blowing it. What do you expect from this, you guys? What do you, what are you thinking you're going to get out of, out of this? And then the author says, but they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. It's not like God plugged their ears and said, you can't hear what he's saying. What it does mean, I think, is God did not grant them repentance. There's two places in the New Testament that talk about God granting people repentance. Acts 11, when it's talking about the Gentiles, the report after Peter eats with Cornelius and baptizes them, the the response of the church is, then to the Gentiles, God also has granted repentance that leads to life. So God can grant repentance. Or or 2 Timothy, when Paul is saying, this is how you deal with those who are in contention with you. Don't be ugly. Don't be mean. Don't be rotten. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. So what God has done here by saying he's going to put them to death is he has not granted them repentance. He's not withheld it. He hasn't given it to them. It's not like they want to repent and they can't. These guys are just living high on the hog. This is the best it is, man. I'm, I'm living my best life now. And that's what they're going to do. So that's the bad report that they heard. The good report is much shorter. Verse 26. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. So little Samuel, who is at the tabernacle and he's, he's just doing his job. He's just doing, Eli says, you know what, Samuel, we need some more water. Or you know what, there's, there's oil. Would you go pick up some oil and bring it over? Because we're going to need to fill these lamps tonight. Whatever it is, little Samuel's just running around doing what he's told. It, it's not like he was some superhero. And yet, because he was faithful, because he was dedicated to what the Lord was saying, people noticed. The people see him and go, this is what we're talking about. These these rotten priests, they stink. Why can't we have more of this? That's what we want. And God himself sees this. God recognizes that Samuel is just being a faithful little follower. 
doing whatever it was. He, I doubt that Samuel was offering sacrifices. He's a little boy. He probably couldn't get something up on the altar if he had to. So he's not doing the major, you know, huge upfront work. He's probably doing a little quiet behind the scenes things. And yet, because he's faithful, because he's doing it with all his heart, because he's, he's not doing it to indulge himself, people notice. He grew in statute before God and man. That's really great report. I, I hope that that's what I get to hear when I get to heaven. That would be nice. <laughs> God says, hey, I saw, I noticed you did a good job. So now that's the contrast. We went back and forth between these two families. The author sets it up that way on purpose. He, he, he draws these two together so that we can look and say, remember where we're at in history? This is the time of the judges where there's no king in Israel and everybody does what's right in their own eyes. And some get it right and some don't. And so we need a word from the Lord. We need God to come in and explain this situation to us. And that's exactly what happens. There came a man of God to Eli. No idea who this man was, not named, just some prophet shows up and says to the high priest, the Lord says, did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when you were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? He's talking about the, the tribe of Levi, the house of Aaron. Did, did I really show myself to you? Did I do these things? Did I call you from all of the tribes of Israel? I gave you this specific job that you could minister before me that you would participate in the sacrifices, that you would earn your living, that you would be fed from the ministry that you do. Didn't I do that for you? The Lord says, I promised your house and the house of your father that they should go in and out before me forever. But now, declares the Lord, far be it for me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. If you honor God, he honors you. So they didn't need to be stealing all of this food and all that stuff. If they would have been faithful and honored God, God would have honored them, it, however that would look for them. But since they don't honor him, since they, they hold him lightly, they will be lightly esteemed. That really is the contrast with what we just heard about Eli or uh, uh, Samuel, isn't it? He grew in stature before God and man. They, he was not lightly esteemed. He was greatly esteemed. This is the, the, the promise that they receive, is they will be lightly esteemed. They will be thought of as... as worthless men recorded in the scripture forever then he says behold days are coming when i will cut off the strength of your house in other words your family's uh, line as priests is over and and the threat here is really chilling because he says there won't be an old man in your house as an old man that makes me happy to know that's a blessing to have an old man in your house you should have an old man in your house there that's a <laughs> thank you brother that's that's a good thing um, but Eli's family is not going to have, they're not going to live long enough to have old men in their house. They're going to die. And he says, the one that I'm going to leave alive, I'm going to leave him alive just so he can weep his eyes out. He's, he's going to see all that's going to come upon you. I, you will be esteemed lightly and it's all going to fall upon you. But then in verse 35, he offers a promise of hope. So it's not, it's curses, but it's also a promise of hope. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build a sure house, um, and he will go in and out before my anointed forever. Suddenly there's this promise. You guys are really messing it up. I'm going to raise up a faithful priest. I think in context, the immediate fulfillment of that has got to be Samuel. Samuel is going to show up. He is When we go through the rest of the book of Samuel, you're going to see this man be faithful over and over again. He's going to rebuke Saul because Saul said, 
well, I'll just do the sacrifice myself. And he said, you should have waited for me. So he is a faithful priest. He's after God's own heart. But that can't be the total fulfillment of that promise. And the reason for that is kind of sad. When we get to chapter 8, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. Oh, good. See, there's his house established forever. The name of his firstborn was Joel. The name of his secondborn was Abijah. Sorry, Joel. <laughs> it's Joel's two names. Um, and they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in the ways, in his ways, and turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. So Samuel, as, as much hope as we have there, it's not it. There's got to be something else. There's got to be another priest who will have a house built forever, who will go in and out and, and be faithful. And we know where that leads. Jesus Christ is a faithful high priest. Hebrews 4 says, since we have such a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. We have a great and a real high priest. This picture comes, we hear the echo of it in Samuel, but that's not it. As, as good as Samuel is, that's not the fullness of it. It's coming. But even that's not the completeness of it because Jesus is the high priest. Who are the priests? We are. We are a nation of priests. So that's the promise. That's, that's what we're hoping for. That's what we're looking to is this faithful priesthood. So why do we get to be the faithful priests? Why is it that we are made that way? Well, it's because we have a faithful high priest who's over the, the kingdom. And this is where the Donatists come back in. The Donatists were perfectionists. I think they maybe distorted their own righteousness a bit here. Because what they said was, if you are morally compromised, you cannot minister. You cannot be a minister in the house of God. If that's true, who's qualified to minister? Jesus Christ, and that's it. Nobody else. That's not the way he set up his church. So the Donatists were, were condemned as heretics because they said the sacrament only works if the person administering it is holy enough. That can't be. The Roman response, the way the Roman church responded to it was, no, the sacrament works because there's power in the sacrament in and of itself. And so if we as the Roman church ordain somebody and, and they administer the sacrament, it works because we ordained them and they administer the sacrament. Almost. The Protestant response to that is the sacrament works because the person who is receiving the sacrament has faith in Jesus Christ. So that's our, our the theology of the Lord's Supper. When you come and you receive the Lord's Supper, the faith that you have in Jesus Christ is fed as you eat. When you come to the waters of baptism, you are baptized into his death and raised through faith. So the person who is administering the sacraments could be morally compromised, and yet they're still effective in you, not because there's power in dunking somebody in water, but because there's power and faith in Jesus Christ. So that, that's the Protestant approach to it. So here's the thing. If you have ever been part of a church where the leadership eventually fell away, or you have been blessed, richly blessed by somebody who's had a wonderful ministry only for them to, to turn out to be just horrible, it doesn't mean it didn't count. So for example, Ravi Zacharias, wonderful speaker, great apologist, very smart man, a perpetual sexual predator was discovered after his death. Does that mean we should burn all our Robbie Zacharias books, that we should, we should never listen to him again? No, he had some wonderful things to say. He had some very good insights. It's not because Robbie Zacharias was pure and perfect and holy 
that this works. It's because God is feeding his faith even through fallen people. But we do have someone who is perfect. We do have a high, a high priest who's not going to just kind of roll his eyes and say, oh, you guys, why are you acting like this? Jesus Christ will deal with us. He will engage us. He will correct us. He will rebuke us. If you haven't been disciplined, it's because God's not acting as your father. So God will do these things. He will do it for the benefit of his church. So this picture that we get of this back and forth between Eli's rotten sons, by the way, did you notice when their names finally came up? All the way through this whole chapter, it's been his sons, worthless priests, the priests, the young men. The only time it comes up by name is when it announces their judgment. Verse 34, and this shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. They shall, this shall be a sign to you. Both of them will die on the same day. It's the only time they get named in that whole section. God is really jarring that. That's really drawing that in. The judgment for them is not restorative. It's final. It's over. So other people, God will rebuke and correct and, and, and discipline, but these folks who have been abusing it have done that. So here's the thing. How do you be like Samuel? Right? Not you become this great and wonderful prophet who, who thunders from heaven. Think of Samuel as a young boy. He is just ministering because that's what he does. And he's, he's serving the Lord. As a matter of fact, in the next chapter, we're going to hear that he doesn't know the Lord yet. He's, he's still growing. He hasn't gotten to the point where he can understand it. The Lord hasn't called him. He's doing it out of just obedience to the Lord, just, just following with what he's been told. And so he walks with the Lord and he does what he's supposed to do. So the ministry in the church, it's not all focused up front. Am I leading worship? Am I, am I preaching and teaching and those kind of things? Those are up front and they're very visible and very necessary and good. Don't mean to diss that at all. But that isn't the extent of, of faithful and good ministry. You could be serving in this church in a way that nobody else could see. And yet, you'll be growing in stature before God and man. People will notice that you have a loving and a caring heart, and you're pouring it out on other people. And that's the contrast that we're supposed to see. That's what we're hoping for in a high priest who goes out in and out before the Lord's anointed. Samuel went in and out before the Lord's anointed. David called Saul the Lord's anointed many times. Samuel died before Saul did. So that was who he was talking about. Was Saul the promised one, the promised anointed one? He wasn't going to be it either. David, David's not quite it. So it's all angling. It's all pointing us towards the fulfillment of this promise and who Jesus Christ is going to be. And the blessing is that we minister under him. And we don't have to be perfect. Any Donatists in the crowd today, I want to rebuke you, call you to repentance. You don't have to have somebody who's morally perfect in every way, shape, and form. Now, having said that, strive to be morally perfect in every way, shape, and form. You don't just go, well, you know, hey, it's cool. God's covered it, so I can live however I want. No, Scripture is pretty clear about that. The blessing is if you fail, if you stumble, that's not it. It hasn't ruined everything. The disciples that you've made, the people that you've helped grow in Christ, they're still helped to grow in Christ, even if you stumble, even if you fall. And so that's the blessing. And now you're free to go serve. Go serve. Go do what it is that's all in your heart. Serve the way the Lord leads you. How can you do it with delight and with joy? Not stealing meat from your friends, but giving to others, pouring out for others. That's the blessing of this. That's, 
that's where this, this overture to the kingdom comes in. This is what it's like for us to live in that kingdom. And not the ultimate fullness, but the fullness of it right now is, is to live in that loving, sharing, and giving way. Little Samuel, little tiny Samuel. That's our, that's our role model here. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, um, we do thank you.